You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dear friends, we are so sorry about the ads. They are a nightmare in every way. But with your donations, we can get rid of ads someday. Beautiful, Kevin. Mm, thanks, Rob. Bach and Harnick are smiling <laughs> so your big hearts right out. now. <laughs> Friends, yes, we are back with a new plea. Much like those adorable puppets from Avenue Q, we are asking for you to give us your money. <laughs> for those of you who have headed over to Patreon to throw a little money our way, we thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Your contributions are the only budget we have for this show, and it provided us a new soundboard and better studio space. So a thank you. Thank you. And as you know, nothing is more fulfilling than talking to the legends of Broadway and hearing them share their thoughts, wisdom, and talents with all of us. However, it does cost money. And if you want to help us keep the show going, please head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search for Behind the Curtain, and you can give as little as a dollar a month. And trust me, that dollar will help us more than you will ever know. Plus, for certain monetary donations, you will get to pick your favorite thing and have advanced knowledge of our future guests so you can ask the legends your own questions. Ooh. Or you can simply leave canned goods and an original cast recording of How Now Dow Jones outside our doors if you don't want to contribute on Patreon.com. Truth. So once again, please head over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to help us out. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends. Did you hear that deep breath? That I was know. like one of those rent of a car playtex deep breaths. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Walter Winchell, Dorothy Kilgallen, Hedda Hopper, <laughs> all journalists whose personalities were sometimes more interesting, dramatic, and compelling than the subjects they were spotlighting. Today, where one piece of theatrical journalism sounds just like another, it's hard to find a voice that could live up to the colorful writers of yesteryear. But we found one, and he is today's guest. That's right. Well, he currently has radio programs on 710 WOR in NYC, New York City, and AM 970. Before his foray into broadcasting, however, he was the New York Post Broadway columnist who instilled <laughs> fear, neuroses, and sleepless nights into Broadway's best. He could also elevate composers that no one had ever heard of into overnight sensations and spotlight musicals that no one thought of attending. But 
even after we have all gone and Cindy Lucas has won the Lifetime Achievement Award, our guest's book, Razzle Dazzle, will still be read by countless folks who wanted to see how Broadway came to be. To tell us what it was like to learn at the feet of Gerald Schoenfeld, tangle with Rosie O'Donnell and David Laveau, steal <laughs> scenes from Angelica Houston, and how he became an expert in all things Jack Cassidy, here is the one and only Michael Riedel. I know. What? You're, you're excited. You, you got me. What he? How well, I'm trying to remember what composer I discovered. I think it may have been Sigmund Romberg in 1912 <laughs> when he was working for the original Schubert Brothers. We're really proud and of I, that one. Thanks, and I was Michael. writing for the Daily Mirror. Thank you. Which went out of business in 1910. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you keep saying Broadway legends, Broadway. How old do you think I am? Do I look like Mimi Hines to you? Hey, we, we have all. Uh, Michael, uh, Michael is our range. youngest guest he by is. 67 Forever. years. Yes, I'm serious. 67 years. <laughs> yeah. I wish that you could have been. What was it? Who did you say? Sigmund Romberg? Oh, man. Sigmund Romberg is a very underrated composer. He wrote operettas. Nobody listens to operettas anywhere. Nope. But I tell you, for a gift of melody, the best is probably, in my mind, Richard Rogers. And after mm. Richard Rogers is Sigmund Romberg. Uh, New Moon is oh, yeah. beautiful, beautiful stuff. Softly as in the morning sunrise, which is an Oscar Hammerstein oh, yeah. lyric, I believe. And if you think about it closely, though, I mean, is there any other kind of a sunrise but a morning sunrise? Well, so, uh, <laughs> Steve Sondheim may have a point when he picks apart old Oscar Hammerstein's <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> but there you are. <laughs> but hey, you know, it was but poetic. I'm a big Sigmund Romberg fan. I'm, okay. a big, I'm a big operetta fan. People, people don't give operettas the time of day anymore. But, well, and, right. and, and maybe the books don't work, and I'm not so sure I would want to sit through uh, New Moon. But just listening to the score, you right. hear those gorgeous yeah. melodies. Victor Herbert. Oh, oh yeah, even Desert yeah. Song. I mean, I, Desert I, I Song. Love yeah, these they're, songs. They're, 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 they're all terrific. What, what's your agree? favorite operetta? If you uh, have to pick one. It would be New Moon, just in New terms Moon. of okay. the score. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm yeah. A, I tell you, I'm a big Sigmund Romberg fan, but I love. Uh, Here's a name that's uh, still in lights. Reginald DeCoven. <laughs> of course. The well, he's making a comeback. He's making a comeback. Robin Hood's coming back. Well, and you know what theater Reginald DeCoven built? He built the Lyric Theater, which is now home to Harry Potter. Did he really? Oh, yeah. My, that was or his half of it is, yeah. Reginald wow. Coven built that theater, and then uh, those theaters fell in, uh, of course, uh, decrepitude and disrepair on right. 42nd Street in the 70s and into the 80s. They were salvaged by the biggest crook of all time, Garth Drabinsky, who ran Livent. Uh, yeah. He produced Ragtime. Yeah. 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 And he turned, uh, I think it was the Apollo and the Lyric, he combined them together in the 90s, right. turned them into the Ford Center, which turned out to be this white elephant, this big barn of a theater. <laughs> Huge. And everything yeah. in that theater was a fiasco, including the biggest flop in the history of Broadway, Spider-Man. Your favorite musical. Oh, Michael's God. lost a hundred million dollars in that theater. God, I'll never forget that 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 whatever that was called, whatever that experience was. Wait a minute, <laughs> it's so called terrible. It's called, it was called it was terrible. Crazy. All in lights. Um, so I, I want to ask you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Geneseo, New York, yep. small town outside of Rochester, New York. I'm okay. from Elmira, just a full Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Didn't, they fi- didn't they find the, uh, the golden tablets there up yeah. there? <laughs> <laughs> that was outside on a hill. Yeah, a and the more, that's where out. the Mormons yeah. are from, right? Mark yeah. Mark yeah. Mark, yeah, in your hometown? Out. It's more near Bath, I think, up, up western. But it's western there, New York. Yeah. It, but Mark Twain is, is, was from there. That was right. the only thing. See, people don't People think, oh, well, you're where are you from? I say I'm from upstate. They oh, you're from Poughkeepsie? No, that is not upstate, folks. Upstate is basically Ohio. Yes. It's going up that way. To Ontario, to the Midwest. No big cities. Like, yeah, no. Rochester was the nearest city. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I went to, uh, when I went to see plays and musicals as a kid, I went to uh, the Auditorium Theater in Rochester, also the home of the Eastman School of Music, where Charles oh. Strauss studied. Yes, yeah. classical music. Yeah. Uh, he was trained there. Yeah. And uh, I saw at the, at the Auditorium Theater, I'm trying to remember. 
I think the first show I may have seen there was, um, would have been in the 70s. I think it was Martin Landau in uh, Dracula. Oh, my God. Because Frank Langella did it famously on Broadway. Yeah, oh, yeah. And then Martin Landau did it uh, on tour. And I remember, because, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, so I was sitting up in the nosebleed seats. And uh, there was a a great scene in Dracula where, I think it's Mina, is lounging on a couch. And all of a sudden, um, Dracula's hands come up right behind her on the couch. One, two, and the audience screams. The problem, though, is if you're in the nosebleed seats, you can see Martin Landau crawling <laughs> on the stage behind the couch. So the, the magic so is gone. The illusion lo- 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 loses its effect to startle you when you can see Martin Landau shimmying along the back of the stage and put his hands up over the couch on Mina. So, so that's why I was always cynical yes. about the theater. Oh, that's where it started. when I was 10... I saw how the magic was. Done. It's really Martin Landau's fault. <laughs> it's all Martin Landau's fault. Well, I went. To, you know, why I went Landau. to see him because he was in Space 1999, which I loved as a kid. And that was your favorite thing. So that's why you went to go see it. That's amazing. Okay, what did mom and dad do? My father was the athletic director at SUNY Geneseo, mm. and my mother was an elementary school librarian. Oh, and wow. they were supportive of you going to the theater. And well, I never really went into the theater. I mean, I was uh, basically uh, as a kid, I was a big reader. I suppose, oh. which is how I, in the end, became a writer, because I never set out to be a writer either, but you can't be a writer without being a reader. Yeah. Uh, and I was not really involved in the theater. I, I did a couple of plays in high school, but it didn't seem uh, like, I mean, kind of a career or profession. But what I what I always did was I couldn't wait to get home from school so I could go to my room and I could read my two favorite authors growing up, Agatha Christie oh. yeah. and uh, Ian Fleming. Of okay. course, wrote the James Bond books. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. And, uh, you know, I learned from them. It's funny, when I wrote, uh, years later, when I wrote my book, Razzle Dazzle, The Battle yes. for Broadway. So uh, good. Simon so good. We'll talk about it. <laughs> uh, I remember reading Agatha Christie and Ian Fleming and what stuck in my mind was that every time I finished a chapter that they'd written, I wanted to read the next chapter. Mm. The narrative drive of Ian Fleming and Agatha Christie uh, can't be beaten. It's something that I tried to um, adopt when I was writing my book. And Definitely. Succeeded. Oh, hands down. I mean, you want to end a chapter so that the person reading just says, i got to find out what happens next. And that's how I felt reading Ian Fleming and Agatha Christie. I picked up Razzle Dazzle at 8 p.m. It's a true story. 6 a.m. the next morning. Oh. I was done. I stayed up all night to finish it because you literally you cannot put it down. I, we're going to talk more about okay, it. Okay, because I, yeah. I knew we were. It's also, Michael, but it's also yeah. a t- it's also a way to keep your interest as the writer going. Because uh, when I would finish a chapter, I would want to write it in such a way that I myself, the person writing the book, couldn't wait to get to the computer the next day yeah. so I could figure out what the hell I was going to write next. What is your writing process when you're putting a book together? Do you do you amass all the research, then start writing, or do you write, research, write, research? No, I tend to do uh, all of the... I, I did about 70 interviews, I think, for this book. I yeah. did all the interviews first. Then I had to read a lot of secondary sources because, you know, I, I think the reason this book... Is it jumps out of the theater ghetto, if you will, and isn't just a book for uh, you know for show queens? Truly, uh, I tried to link the fortunes of Broadway to the fortunes of New York City yeah. in the 60s yeah. and 70s when the city was going bankrupt and Times well. Square was yes. dangerous. Yeah. Yes. And I always felt that Broadway never got the credit it deserved for really sticking by the city right. when many other industries were fleeing New York yeah. City. Yeah, I mean, where's ran. Broadway going to go? You know, yeah. It's not going to go to exactly. New Jersey, right? It had yeah. to be here. Right. And a handful of people had to save it. So, But in order to put that together, I 
had to, and this was the you know the pleasure of working on the book. I had to read a lot of books about the history of New York City yeah. and the history of the financial crisis of New York City. And it, we and we all sort of know that New York was bad in the '70s and it was dangerous. But it was interesting to see how that happened because if you were in New York City after World War II, when America was the most powerful country in the world and New York was the greatest city in the world. And this was the time of Broadway's golden age. Right. You know, yeah. all the great shows of Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and Cole Porter. You would have looked around in New York and you would have said, this city is never going to fall apart. And how could, mm. in, you know, 50, 25 years, could the city be like Greece? Insolvent. Yeah. Yeah. Dangerous. A place that nobody wanted to live in. No tourists wanted to go to. The idea that Disney... Disney would have a show in Times Square in 1975? Ridiculous. How did the city unravel so quickly? And that's what I learned in researching the book, which basically it's a pure economics. You know, If you spend more than you take in, eventually you're going to yeah. go bust. Well, yeah. And that's, that's what happened in New York problem. City. Yeah. But when it went bust, it brought everything else down with it. And almost, it almost brought Broadway down with it as well. Because if you are selling your wares in a neighborhood that is dangerous... You're not going to have any customers. Yeah, right. And Broadway was selling its wares in Times Square, and Times Square was the Times Square of Taxi Driver, yep. the Times Square of Midnight Cowboy, the Times Square of Shaft, yep. the Times Square that you know you you took your life in your hands when you walked down 42nd Street. I think young listeners or people that are new to New York in the last 10 years would would not even believe that when they no. walked. Can't even 42nd. imagine. No. I, I mean, I came in 2002, and I it was it was bet it was on the, yeah, it was on on the, the way up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but people that I know from the Tell paint these stories of of hustlers. Well, you you, you were vivid in the yeah, book pimps about it. I mean, and it hustlers was a, and it was a dangerous, dangerous place. People would have to walk home in pairs if they're leaving their Broadway show. The police, yeah, the police in uh, in Times Square in the seventies, because uh, they were fighting with the city because right. their you know their pension plans were yeah. going bust. Mm -hmm. Since the city was going bust, the police would stand out in Times Square at 6 o'clock, and they would pass out flyers to pedestrians saying, get out of this neighborhood before dark. It's too dangerous. Now, can you imagine if you're the Schuberts and you own Broadway theaters, right. and the police are telling people, <laughs> don't go to this neighborhood I mean, after dark? That's the end of your business. Yeah. yeah. It's the end it's of your business. Let alone if a producer wants to, uh, that theater, you want me to go to that theater? No, thank you. I mean, it, it's a... You know, the, uh, I, I interviewed a lot of actors, of course, who worked in uh, Times Square in the mm -hmm. 70s, and they would have regular meetings with security people backstage who said, now when you leave the theater, don't walk on the sidewalks. Walk in the middle of the street because the sidewalks is dark there. And people might be loitering in alleys who would jump you and mug you. So walk in the middle of the road. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's what they were told. They were given instructions on how to get home uh, and be safe on their way home uh, from, from the theater. What was the first Broadway show you saw? The first Broadway show I saw was Annie in <laughs> uh, 1977. It was the first time I was in New York City, I remember. So I would have been 11. Mm -hmm. Came with my parents because my father had friends who lived outside of the city, and they, my parents brought me into the city for the day. Must it must have been a matinee, and it was at the Alvin Theater, now the Neil mm -hmm. Simon Theater. And I remember uh, we had the middle of the last row of the balcony, so we were right up against the wall, <laughs> yes. as far away right. from the stage as you could possibly be. Uh, and I remember thinking that Andrea McArdle was adorable. I think I had a, a crush on her when she was the orphan. She wasn't so cute when she put on that off, that ghastly wig. At the end, she was better yeah, when she permed. Was, yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah, terrible. Yeah, that was, was yeah, that, that was not good. But you know, she was really cute. She was right. cute. And an amazing yeah. voice. Yeah. But the person who knocked me out of the water was um, Dorothy Loudon, 
as Miss Hannigan. Right. You know, and uh, it was my good fortune um, later on in life when I was covering Broadway, first for Theater Week magazine and then the Daily News, to get to know Dorothy. Oh, yeah? And she was fun. I mean, I would go to lunch with her and her press agent. Um, I can't remember his name now. The sweet guy, long gone. But we would go to lunch at a restaurant, I think it was called La Madeleine on 43rd Street. Dorothy would have about three bottles of Chardonnay. <laughs> and then David, David Powers, that was the president's nice. name. And David and I would then get her home in a cab. She lived up on Central Park West in the 70s. And David would buzz Fred Ebb, who lived in the same building. And Fred would come down and collect Dorothy and then make sure Dorothy got into bed. <laughs> That's amazing. But Dorothy had a very sad life. She was an alcoholic, I, I heard, regret yeah. this, I'm sad to say. But what was sad about Dorothy's life was she was in love with Norman Paris, who was a band leader who had yeah. the Norman Paris Trio, which mm-hmm. is a famous jazz band in the mm-hmm. 50s and yeah. the 60s. And uh, Norman Paris was married, and he was Catholic. And his wife wouldn't give him a divorce. And Dorothy was in love with him. They carried on an affair for a long time. And uh, then his wife died. And Dorothy married Norman Paris after the wife died. And it was right around the time that she got Annie. So now she's big Tony Award winner. Career is on the rise. She has the man she loves. And about a year into the marriage, Norman Paris died. And Dorothy never recovered from his death. And I think that sent her into... Deep depression from which she never really came out of. Um, but she was she was funny. She had some of the best lines. I remember I interviewed Tom Meehan for my book because Annie's one of the one of the big shows of the seventies yeah. right. that helped turn Broadway yeah. around. And uh, Tom told me Dorothy was so effective as Miss Hannigan because in real life Dorothy hated children. She never had any children, and she did not like children. And I remember Andrea, Andrea McCardle telling me the first read through of Annie. They were at the table. And uh, they took a break, and Dorothy went up to Andrea, and Andrea's like nine years old. And she says, listen to me, kid. If you make one move on any of my laugh lines, you will not live to see the curtain call. <laughs> yes. And Andrea said she meant it. She meant it. <laughs> she's going to bust that kid's head oh open. <laughs> but she's right. She's right. Okay, so, totally. so you're 11, you saw Annie. Sorry, you saw loved Annie. it. And then... What was high school like? You were you were writing mostly? No, no. Uh, I was. Uh, I mean, I wrote uh, English papers and history papers, but uh, no, I was reading a lot. Um, and I did. I did a pl- I did one play. We did the Diary of Anne Frank, and uh, we did the all Christian version because there were <laughs> there was only one Jewish family in upstate New York in Geneseo, uh, the Levins. I remember everyone in the town said, "You know the Levins." Pause. The Jewish family. <laughs> <laughs> they were the Levins. The Pause. Right. Jewish family. Yes. Um, I don't know. It wasn't mean they eat little Christian babies. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I remember the Levens auditioned for the Anne Frank, and they weren't cast in it. But all the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians <laughs> and the Catholics were. So it was the it was the all Christian version wow. of the of the diary of, yeah. of Anne Frank. Good. You know, and, and nobody. Although, actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Levin kid did get to play. It's terrible to say. That. I think he did get to play one of the Nazis who comes <laughs> oh, in at the no, end. No, to no, write, you to are making that, that up. I think what he the hell is going on at this school? <laughs> you played like the dentist or the I doctor? played Jan Dussel, the dentist, yeah. dentist oh who God. in real life, because then I later on read the unexpurgated diary, yeah. Jan Dussel was a child molester. He was yeah. molesting Anne up there in the attic. Yeah, have you read the diary? <gasps> 
Do you know that those diaries what? are like fascinating? I oh mean, yeah, like, the on the on expert. Yeah, now, wait, when you were twelve, you became a young Republican. Did you think yes. you were? Did you think you were? I was. Go up, into, I, I was fourth graders for Ford. Did you? But did you think you were going to go into politics? I wanted to go into politics. I was interested in politics because I wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah, I was right. interested in law. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure why I was interested in law, but I did like politics a lot. I do have more my most vivid memories. In addition to a couple of plays that I saw, and this is theater to some extent, I, for some reason, as a little kid, I loved political conventions. I remember the convention, I think it would have been 76, when Reagan challenged Ford, and there was the deal going down. Yeah. Was Reagan going to be Ford's vice president? Uh, and then in the end, it didn't come to pass. But I remember the drama of... I mean, now conventions are boring, yeah, they're yeah. scripted, everyone's nominated right. ahead of time. You know, but back in the days, those big political figures behind the scenes, the real power players yeah. who were organizing everything were fascinating. I remember uh, Ted Kennedy's challenge to Jimmy Carter, yeah. and that was a thrilling convention, too. And I just remember my parents letting me stay up late to watch all those great political conventions. And I read... Uh, Jack Germond and Jules Whitcover were two political pundits. Germond was at the Baltimore Sun, and can't remember where Whitcover was, but they wrote these great books uh, at the end of every presidential campaign. Whose Broad Stripes was the one about Bush and Dukakis. Oh, Wake Us When It's, yeah, yeah, Wake yeah. Us when it's Over right. was Mondale yep. and Reagan, and I love those books. A- and I guess, to some extent, I think about it, the way I wrote Razzle Dazzle was the way those political writers wrote their books, where they took you behind the scenes, yes. where you saw with the people who held the real power, right. and how those power brokers in those smoky rooms decided who got on right. the ticket and whatnot. And I loved all. There, I loved you all create stuff. that atmosphere exactly. too. You want I to mean, take you want to take you into that bar, yes, and you feel like oh, that's what it was. Like. You get the sense of what that world was like. So right. you've definitely done so that. So on Broadway at this time, who held the real power? Well, in the 70s uh, and into the 80s, it would have been the Schuberts. It would have been Bernie Jacobs and Jerry Schoenfeld, who were like uh, those old political power brokers. Yeah, you know, right. They were behind-the-scenes guys. They were lawyers. They'd worked for the real Schubert brothers, Lee and J.J. Schubert. And in 1972, when the company, the Schubert Organization, was bankrupt and Times Square was dangerous. And remember, the theaters weren't landmark back then, so right. they were being torn down. Torn down. Yeah. There's a line from Follies. You know, they get have the reunion there at the theater, and he says, this theater has been home to, to legitimate theater and blue movies and vaudeville and a final burst of glory it is to be a parking lot because the theaters had more value as parking lots. But Bernie and Jerry, who toiled for years as these lawyers in obscurity, they staged a boardroom coup and pushed out, pushed out the Schubert family and took over uh, the company for themselves and slowly began to rebuild the Schubert organization. And they were the real power brokers back then. Although, I mean, I knew Jerry Schoenfeld very, very well, very well. He died in 2008, but I've been around a long time. Yep. And, you know, when I got to know Jerry, he was the king of Broadway. He yep. was the most powerful man on Broadway. Right. He was the chairman of the board of the yep. Schubert organization. But what I learned from Jerry was that, you know, when he and Bernie were there in the 70s, they didn't have any power. They were barely able to survive. They the were struggling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they were struggling, though, to keep that doddering old mothballed empire of the Schubert organization together. You know, their power really only accrued into the 80s when they had shows like Cats and Les Mis and Phantom, and those shows were making so much money that Bernie and Jerry then really had a lot of power. But it was a long period of time where they were just struggling to keep the whole thing going. How did you go from, I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a writer, to 
now coming to New York and now writing for the theater industry or well, writing about the theater industry? I went uh, to Columbia right. and I was studying history and I was going to be a lawyer and I had to, had to get a job one summer and part of the summer I spent working uh, shelving books in the library at Columbia, which is not terribly exciting. Uh, and I saw uh, an advertisement for a um, summer position working for a Broadway producer. Mm-hmm. And because I was in New York now, I'd seen some Broadway shows. I was, inter- I was beginning to get interested in the theater. What were some of your favorites when you first moved to the city? Uh, when I first moved to the city, I remember Lend Me a Tenor. Okay, directed great. Directed by Jerry Zachs, oh, which yeah. was right. a lot of fun. Uh, I do remember seeing, for some reason, I went down to La Mama, oh. which you would never catch me dead there now. <laughs> right. I can't stand that avant-garde crap. But back then, I was like, oh, I have to learn everything. But I do remember seeing a very good, it was very long, like five hours, production of Ibsen's Rosmersholm, which is a play you will never see today. Like, said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was interesting. Rosmersholm was, was quite interesting, that play. Yeah. And I actually happened to be a big Ibsen fan. Okay. So anyway, so I was kind of hanging around the theater then, and I'd gone to London. I had a semester okay. abroad in London. Nice. And that's, now that I think about it, it was in London where I really fell in love with the theater because I did see some extraordinary actors and some great productions. I remember seeing um, a wonderful play by Shaw called You Never Can Tell, mm. which was at the Haymarket. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd never seen anything like that. I was really kind of, I was just dazzled by the, um, the wordplay. Mm. And the wit. Mm-hmm. And I remember this old man was sitting in front of me. And I was with my friend Dan Futterman, who would go on to uh, oh, write yeah. uh, the um, Capote screenplay. Yes. Yeah. Dan and I went to, went to college yeah. together. Nice. And uh, Dan and I were sitting behind this old man. And I recognized the old, this, old, this old dude in front of us. I said, Dan, he's the butler in Arthur. And it was John Gielgud. <laughs> I, mean, I had no idea who John Gielgud was. I mean, I had no idea He's he was the the, one of the greatest Shakespearean actors of the 20th century. I mean, Dan and I knew him as the butler in Arthur. Yeah. You know, I'll alert the media. Yeah. First of all, that performance in Arthur is brilliant. It's absolutely it sensational. Is. It actually is. Like, it's terrific. I love it. That, fair, that is a great movie, too, That's by a the way. great movie. And it has my favorite movie theme song of all time, Arthur's Theme. Yeah. Christopher Cross. It took four. It took four or five people to write it. Uh, Burt Bacharach, <laughs> Carol Bayer-Sager, Christopher Cross, oh. and, and Peter Allen. Oh no, Peter oh, Allen. My. Peter Allen. Well, Peter Allen only wrote one line. He and he and Carol Bayer-Sager had worked on a song that didn't go anywhere. But Peter Allen had come up with this line because he was actually on a plane, and for some reason the plane couldn't land at JFK. So he was circling the city, and he came up with a line on the plane: "When you get caught." between the moon and New York City, because he was caught on the plane between the moon and New York City. And when Carol and Bert were writing the song, she remembered that phrase, and she said, let's call Peter and see if we can use the phrase. And of course, Bert was opposed to it, because he thought, if we use the phrase, he's cut in on the royalties. Give him some money. (laughs) So so Peter was no fool. (laughs) But, But, you know, if you think about it, every great song has a hook. Yeah. And if you say to people, what is the Arthur's theme song? When you get caught between the moon and New York City. Every other lyric is fine and great, but what do you remember? When you get caught between the moon and New York City. So he's entitled to his role. Absolutely. (laughs) So anyway, so we're in London and saw John Gielgud. Love Arthur. And I saw um, You Never Can Tell, which I liked. And then I started going to the theater regularly in London because they had these wonderful things, you know, five-pound ticket. So I saw Vanessa Redgrave and Anthony Hopkins and Anthony and Cleopatra at the National Theater. 
Uh, I saw a uh, brilliant production of a Václav Havel play called Temptation. Mm. Okay. Which was really, again, you wouldn't see these plays anymore because it was done during the Cold War and it was right. about Czechoslovakia under the Soviet Union yeah. and whatnot. You know, it yeah. would seem dated yeah, now, but right. it was quite, quite interesting. I remember seeing a brilliant production of. Um, uh, Titus Andronicus with the great Brian Cox. Wow. It was directed by Deborah Warner, who mm. would go on to do a lot of interesting mm. shows. But it was real blood and guts. You know, when Livia has her, I think it's Livia has her tongue cut out. The girl yeah. came out, yep. she opened her mouth, and her tongue came falling out, and stumpy hands and blood oh, all over shit. the place. And I loved all that kind of stuff. And I have to say, on the whole, uh, the English do Shakespeare better than than we do, and they right. do Noel Coward better than oh, we God, do. Oh God, yeah. Whereas we do. We do, of course, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller much better than they right. do. I remember seeing a production with um, a production of All My Sons, which is a terrific Arthur Miller play with, oh, God, I can't remember. Michael Gambon was in it. And Michael ba- Gambon is a great actor. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he's just not a shoreman no. in Brooklyn, you yeah. know? And the English actors, they're just not going to yeah. capture that working-class right. Brooklyn they, yeah. accent the way I think, on the whole, Americans just simply cannot get Noel Coward. You see, when, 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 when Americans do Noel Coward, the fundamental flaw they make is that they think, they want to play the subtext. So they say, well, Noel Coward was gay, and most of his leading uh-huh. men are gay, and or they're bisexual, so let's camp it up. Yeah, right? But yeah. Coward would never have allowed for camp. These were sophisticated people whose sexuality may be indeterminate, but he was not going to have you play yeah. their sexuality whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Let me ask you, why doesn't America have a national theater? Well, the closest thing I think we had was the public under Joe Papp yeah. for mm. a while. But also, America is a much bigger country than England. Uh, so we have our regional theaters, which are sort of mini national theaters. Yes. So you have um, the Mark Taper Forum out there in L.A., and you have the Goodman and the Steppenwolf, Kennedy, yeah. Chicago, yeah. the Kennedy Center to some extent. But they've never really done That's interesting yeah, kinds right. of things the yeah. way Steppenwolf and Goodman and Mark Taper it. Forum yeah, did, right. ACT up yeah. in uh, uh, San Francisco yep. and whatnot. Um, I actually... I'm not in favor of a national theater. I'm not in favor of government funding for the arts because my feeling is that can lead to uh, to, to censorship. Mm. I was around in the early 90s when the NEA was funding like Andre Serrano's yes. The Piss Christ yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, some of the other um, artists who were doing things that were deemed offensive. And I remember Jesse Helms, you know, taking to the floor of the Senate and cutting the funding of the NEA. And my feeling about that was, look, if you are against funding nuclear weapons, you have every right to go out and protest the funding of nuclear weapons and to elect people who are going to defund the nuclear program. By the same token, if you're a, I'm an atheist, but if you're an evangelical and you find Andre Serrano, Serrano's piss Christ offensive, you have every right to protest that your tax yeah. dollars are going to, to fund art that you find offensive, and right. you have every right to vote for someone like Jesse Helms who will cut the NEA funding. I don't think the arts should in any way be beholden to the whims of a government. Mm. So I'm not really in favor of government funding of the arts. I think it's much better to have 
big evil corporations atone for their sins by funding the arts. Yes. <laughs> all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, all the great, all the great museums of this of this uh, country were built on the on the sins of robber barons. No, yes. so if you true. go and you yes. up to the Metropolitan Museum and you look at the list of the funders, every single one of them should be in jail for crimes oh, <laughs> committed against humanity. <laughs> We can get on board with that. Yeah, we can I get on board with that. that okay, indeed. so you're in Columbia. You, you went to London. Now you're back. Yeah. So no more law. Not going to be a lawyer anymore. No, well, as I say, then I was interested in the theater, and I got a job with a wonderful Broadway producer named Elizabeth McCann. Uh, Tell yes. us about Legendary. She was Liz great. McCann. I love Liz McCann. Legendary. Uh, she, to this day, I always say, this is the woman who gave me my job in the theater. She said, for God's sake, would you stop telling people that? You're ruining my <laughs> reputation. <laughs> Liz has n- absolutely no memory that I worked for her that summer. Right. No memory <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, but she was working on Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Right. And I remember my very first job, it was summer, and it was one of those beastly, beast, I can say beastly hot summer. I'll tell you why I say beastly hot summer in a moment. And I walked in the office, and Liz said, this guy, this English actor is annoying the hell out of me. Alan Rickman, who was in Lately, isn't it? His air conditioning doesn't work. It's some flea bag apartment that he was put up in because he was not famous then. Right. He was in the RSC and they were doing He said, go over and fix his air conditioning. Now, I'm like the history major from Columbia. What the hell do I know how to, how to fix Alan Rickman's air conditioning unit? So I went to a hardware store and I bought a screwdriver. So I at least, so I looked apart, you know, and I up to his apartment and I knocked on the door and this very tall man <laughs> right. he looked like a praying mantis. He opened the door and said, it's beastly hot in here. Beastly hot. The air conditioning doesn't work. I hope you're here to fix it. I was like, here's my screwdriver. I'll yeah. give it a shot. <laughs> and I remember uh, I walked into the bedroom and I saw a woman's leg sticking out from under the covers and it was Beanie Edney who played the young girl in Lately is Dangerous. And I later heard that Alan had promised Beanie's mother that he would look after her while oh, she was in New York City. Of course. And he certainly was oh, looking after her under the covers. And there was his legs sticking out. And I went over to this air conditioning unit and it was beastly hot. And I like fiddled around with a screwdriver and then I just hit it and it went on. It just went, mm. And I was like, thank you. Thank you very much. And then B.D. Edney looked up and she said, it's beastly hot in here. These English people, they're beastly this and beastly, beastly that. But I thought, wow, if this is the theater, it's fun. Yeah. And if all it takes is to pretend yeah. that you're the air conditioner repairman and it works, <laughs> you got to stay in this it. racket. So, That's genius. So I had fun and I had a great time with Liz McCann and hanging out Lately Isn't Dangerous. And I got to see the Schuberts and Jimmy Niederlander at their offices. They had no mm. idea who I was and little did I know I'd one day get to know all these people really uh, ver- very, very closely and write a book about them. But that was the beginning. But and it then started the, the I'm, I would think, just, you, you said know, that in the intro see, of your book. Se- yeah, it started it seemed, the, the behind the curtain kind of I thing. remember I had to deliver the opening night tickets to Les Liaisons Dangereuses, and the very first person, the first office I went to is Jimmy Niederlanders. His office then, ratty old office, is above the Palace Theater. And the elevator, it was one of these old cages, you know, remember the cage elevator? And there was this man in there who was the elevator operator, and I got in, and he opened the Bible, and he prayed for me. And his name, lay a later friend, I was Julius. And Julius had been the elevator operator at the Palace Theater when RKO owned it. I mean, oh my God. And when Jimmy Niederlander bought it from RKO in 1964, I think, he bought Julius too. Julius came with the theater, and he kept Julius on as the elevator operator. And Julius... 
until he died, he was the elevator operator for Jimmy Nederland. I mean, Jimmy that bought the awesome. theater, and Julius came with yeah. the theater, and Julius was with his Bible saying a prayer for you every time you went up. Such an old school. It yeah. was totally. That's and so the cool offices about. were dusty and ratty, and yeah. you know, I remember Jimmy yelling into a phone, and his feet were on the desk, <laughs> and everyone was like, I remember a, a woman right out of Central Casting, you know, back in Broadway in the 60s and 70s, big thick glasses on the phone with a cigarette. Yeah. What do you want? What do you want? <laughs> I, oh, I'm uh, here at the opening. Ah, just leave it here. Right, yeah. Ah, just leave me here. And then I went over to the Schubert offices, and they're above the Schubert Theater, and they were silent as a tomb, and they were elegant Flemish tapestries and bookcases full of leather-bound first editions and beautiful grand piano mm. and uh, ornate um, um, furniture, very quiet. Very, and there was a little elevator there, too. Was this in the, you said the Schubert building or the Sardis the, It's the Schubert Theater. Yeah, above the Schubert, the Schubert Theater. Yeah, that's where the executive, yeah. where Bernie Jacobs and Jerry Schoenfeld were. Yeah. Very quiet. They had their own elevator, little tiny, and they have their own elevator operator, too. <laughs> that guy's still there, too. And he's he doesn't pray for you, but he has the word of the day. Huh? He has a thesaurus, and he gives you the word of the day, and you have to tell him what it means. Oh, my God. Huh. It's, like, you can't make, I love it's it. It's crazy, crazy little eccentricities of Broadway. But I remember I walked, and I was, oh, I was so intimidated by this. Yeah. It looked like the Palace of Versailles up there mm. in the Schubert offices, but you could real you could really feel power. And I very quiet. And I gave the list. I remember I went to the front desk, and the woman said, "What do you want?" <laughs> the other one's like, "What do you want, kid? Right. What do you want?" Like, what do you want? Said, Here's the list. Waitias on Dutch. She said, "Thank you." <laughs> then I left. But what I saw that day was power. I saw yeah. the two most powerful yeah. entities of Broadway: Jimmy Niederlander, freewheeling, crazy, eccentric, Schubert's abiding, enduring, yeah. mm-hmm. quiet power. Yeah. And over the years, I got to know Jimmy Niederlander really well and didn't get to know Bernie Jacobs so well because he died in 96, mm-hmm. and I was just beginning my career then. But Jerry Schoenfeld, I got to know, and Phil Smith, who today is the chairman of the board. Um, and, you know, I heard their stories for years and years and years, and they, both Jimmy and Jerry trusted me uh, as a reporter, I could always call them and ask them questions, but if anything was off the record, it stayed off the record. And I'd have to go to Jerry's office and sit with him and watch him play Mr. Producer on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. You know, I'd yeah. hear him on negotiating with Sam Cohn, Al Pacino's deal for yeah. stuff, and it was fa- fascinating. It was great fun. And Jerry was a big show-off. He loved, he loved to impress the young reporter. But to be fair to Jerry, I think that he liked me because he had been dealing with the New York Times for so long, and this was a period where the Times was like, oh, these theater owners are just greedy landlords and mm. we can't stand them. Mm. And the New York Times was much more partial to the new kid on the black block back then, uh, Rocco Landisman, mm. who was with your Jamson Jamson. Theaters, yeah. and he was doing Angels in America, and he was doing American musicals, and the Times was very supportive of him, and the Schubert's were rich, and they were doing Andrew Lloyd Webber, and Andrew right. Lloyd Webber was falling out of favor, and here Rocco was shaking things up. And uh, I think, you know, Jerry felt a little bit left out, a little shunted aside by the New York Times. And I think he felt what he and Bernie did to save the Schuberts and indeed to save Broadway, people had forgotten. People didn't care. Uh, It was yesterday's news. And now Jerry was just seen as this rich, powerful Schubert landlord. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Jerry would tell me all these stories about struggling to keep the empire going, stories about Michael Bennett and creating a chorus line and fighting with David Merrick and all these stories that wound up becoming the spine, really, of of my book. When did you decide that you were going to become a reporter? When did you decide that journalism was going to be the world that you were going to enter? Well, I didn't really know what to do after working for Liz McCann because I, I wasn't a director or an actor 
or really a producer. I mean, I worked for Liz for six months, and I still no clue what a producer did. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. You know? uh, but I was at Columbia, and um, I was hanging out with Dan Futterman and some of the other theater people. And through them, I met this guy who got a job as the editor of a small magazine called Theater Week, mm-hmm. long since defunct. <clears throat> and he said, you know, I got to find a managing editor. Would you be interested in the job? So I think, I mean, I didn't have any clips, any newspaper articles to show anyone, so I gave him a couple of history papers I wrote. <laughs> you know, I, I wrote a, yeah. a, a paper on the struggle between Archbishop Laud and Charles I. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now it would be an RSC production. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Eight hours at RSC. That's right. But oh. that's, uh, that's, that's what got me the job at Theater Week. And um, I remember the first person I interviewed... And I really didn't think the job would last very long. I really thought I'd take it for the summer and then I'd yeah. go, go to law school. Else. Or I'd postpone yeah. law school for a year and do it for a year and right. see what happens. Paid $18,000, you know. Although, it's funny, and money's always a funny thing. $18,000, it seemed like a ton of money to me when I was 21 years old. And I, d- yeah. I don't remember feeling deprived or anything like that. I'm in a small little walk-up apartment, but I you ate out every theater night. at night. Got to see free tickets and whatnot. Yeah, 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 it was it's worth it. Yeah, no, it was fine. Yeah, it was no, fine. It totally did. But it was a different city then. You know, you could live in a... I had a walk-up on uh, 88th and 2nd Avenue, just around the corner from Elaine's. Yeah. And I had a, a roommate with a college friend. We were roommates. And I think it was 900 bucks a month, so it was 450 a month. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, now that apartment's probably $15,000 a month, and you couldn't afford that on an $18,000 no. a year. But I ate for free at Elaine's. There was a famous restaurant called Elaine's right that was right yeah. around the block there, 88th and 2nd. And I didn't know it was famous. I would just go in because it looked like a nice place. And Elaine was there. Really? Elaine Kaufman. It, yeah. And she liked me. I was a kid. She said, what do you do, kid? And I said, oh, I'm a journalist. And she used to uh, let me eat for free. She would give me a plate of pasta and give me a glass of wine for free. And I would go there you know, a couple times during the week, and she would chat with me. The waiters, And then every, I started noticing, that looks like Woody Allen. Right. <laughs> that looks like Robert De Niro. Yeah. That looks like Gay Talese. <laughs> and, of course, it was Elaine's, yeah. and they were all hanging out there. But right. I had no idea. I had no idea. But, you know, that, I mean, Elaine loved writers, struggling writers. Right. So I didn't, I didn't pay for a meal at Elaine's for years. And the other person who was really kind to me and fed me for free for years was Jean-Claude Baker, who owned Shea Josephine. Oh. Became a dear, Shea dear friend Josephine, of mine. Shea Josephine, yeah. And Jean-Claude, I remember the first time I went in there, it was, uh, Playwrights Horizons was next door. Yes. Uh, then run by Andre Bishop. Right. And uh, I went and I, I think I had enough money for a glass of wine. And it was five, four dollars. But I didn't have enough money for food. Yeah. So I ordered the glass of wine. And Jean-Claude was very flamboyant and French. My dear, my dear, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing here, my little lamb? He would call me <laughs> in his kimono. Uh, and, and I said, well, you know, I write for Theater Week magazine. And then, you know, he talked and he knew Andre Bishop and he knew the history of the block and whatnot. He said, you must eat. I said, well, mm, uh, I don't have any money. He said, please. And he gave me a steak and whatnot. And then I, he would never charge me oh whenever I would go there. He, I would always sit with him at the bar. He would always give me dinner. Never, never charge That's me. That's amazing. And then about five, three or four years later, I got a job at the Daily News, and I had this wonderful thing called an expense account. And I remember I went to Shea Josephine with a couple of friends to celebrate my job at the Daily News, and uh, we ate and drank, 
and I asked for the check, and Jean-Claude said, there's never a check for you, my friend. I said, Jean-Claude, I have an expense account. <laughs> he said, oh, in that case, and he took the bill, and he added two bottles of Wolf Clicquot to it, <laughs> <laughs> making up for all the free meals that I got up here. So, Mort Zuckerman, if you're listening, you paid for two bottles of Wolf Clicquot at Shea Josephine. I never ordered. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> okay, so oh for... <laughs> that's genius. Okay, so now for our listeners who don't know, what was Theater Week? I own a copy. I used to, you do? I used to buy them. You yeah. did? We've talked about yeah. this on the podcast yeah. before, yeah. Well, Theater Week was a, it was a fun, strange magazine. It was owned by a genuine eccentric named Charles Ortlib, who has the distinction of being the very first publisher of the, the, the publisher of the very first openly gay newspaper called The New York Native. Oh, wow. The Village Voice was gay, but not, but not like yeah. openly gay. gay. Yeah. After Dark was a magazine yeah, in the seventies yeah, yeah. that was <laughs> talked about that, that yeah. was talked gay, about that but, not, but, but the New York Native was political and openly yeah. gay. And Charles Ortlub was a bit of a paranoid schizophrenic, and he had some eccentric theories about AIDS, mainly that it wasn't really AIDS; it was another disease, SIDS, I think it was, and the government was doing it, and. So he's conspiracy kind okay. of thing. He's yeah. out, okay, but he's Ortleb, uh, and they, they always he always told me this that you know he created Theater Week magazine because he was convinced the government was going to shut down the New York Native because of the things they were saying about AIDS. But if he had this little theater magazine, they weren't paying attention to. Once they shut down his newspaper, he could put all his theories about AIDS into the theater magazine that the government would never read. It was fun though because we had complete freedom. I mean, you, you know, we had no. We were the editors. Mm-hmm. We could do whatever we wanted to do. And my contribution was I got a lot of very prominent people in the theater world to write for the magazine for no money. How? Uh, well, they were kind of an unused resource. I mean, I remember um, calling up, because I inherited the Rolodex of the previous editor, and there was uh, the number for Eric Bentley. Now, yeah. I knew the name Eric Bentley because I had taken, uh, as part of a, one of the English classes I had to take, uh, Modern Drama. Yeah. And Eric Bentley t- translated Bertolt Brecht, yeah. so I read his right. translation of yeah. Mother Courage and Three Penny yep. Opera. Uh, and he was also, and I really was getting into Shaw then, and Eric wrote a wonderful book on George Bernard Shaw that I read. And I remember um, Sam, Sam Beckett died, 91, right when I had just become managing editor of the magazine. And I thought, well, we should get somebody of stature to write a piece on Samuel Beckett. And I saw Eric Bentley's name in the Rolodex with his number, and I called him, and I asked him if he would write about Samuel Beckett, and he said yes. 
How much do you pay? $150. Fine. And he wrote this beautiful essay on Samuel Beckett. And I went up to his apartment on Riverside Drive, and he invited me in for a cup of tea because he's English, gave me his essay, and uh, became a really good friend. And when Laurence Olivier died, he wrote a wonderful piece about Laurence Olivier. And Eric Bentley was one of the few people still alive back then who had seen Olivier's very famous double bill, bill at the Old Vic of Oedipus Rex and then uh, Sheridan's The Critic, oh my God. where oh, he yeah. played Oedipus, the first act, and famously, um, when um, you know he uh, blinds himself, let out this scream that people said sounded like a, like a ferret being beaten. But then, after an admission, he came back and he played... Um, I can't remember the name of the critic, but in a real foppy, campy, hilarious way. Right. So, you know, he did the most dramatic play in the history of Western civilization, the first hour. Yeah. And then he did Sheridan's foppy, funny, silly, yeah. quite brilliant yeah. satire of critics, the second hour. And Eric Bentley had been there and saw so it. So cool. So he was able to write about right. that performance. Actual experience. And, uh, you know, that began a, a friendship with Eric. And Eric, God love him, is still alive, 101 years old now, still oh. living in his apartment. And when I uh, was looking wow. for a place to live, after uh, I had to move out of my place around the corner from Elaine's, Eric had this big rambling 14-room apartment on Riverside Drive, and he rented me a room for $400 a month. (laughs) And I lived there for three years. And uh, we would have dinner three times a week, and we talked uh, everything from Shaw to Shakespeare to C.S. Lewis. His tutors at Oxford were C.S. Lewis and J.A.R. Tolkien. So Eric and I, we would talk about Brecht, we would talk about Pirandello, and he had this amazing library. So we would talk about these uh, plays, and then I would go and, and just, just read them. I mean, it was, it was, I had my what an own education. tutorial with, my with Eric Bentley. That's insane. So that was, that was great. What a mentorship, too. And the way. other person I got to write for us, funnily enough, was uh, Arthur Miller <laughs> at Theatre Week magazine. Well, there was a book, very, very good book on the history of British criticism by um, Irving Wardle who was a prominent um, critic, I think, for the Times of London. Mm-hmm. He wrote a very good book on the history of theater criticism in Britain. And I thought, well, who better to review a book by a critic than someone who's been criticized, yes. a playwright? Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow I got Arthur Miller's number in Roxbury, Connecticut. And I called him up. Mr. Miller, yes. Would you be interested in reviewing a book on criticism by Irving Wardle? He said, why not? And then he'd, like Eric Bentley said, all, as all writers do, how much? <laughs> $150. Okay. When do you need it? Uh, I think this is Monday. Wednesday? Fine. Fax those days. Amazing. I remember he faxed it, and I read it. It was terrific. Except he had a funny little um, grammatical problem. He confused his who's and who's, his W-H-O-S-E with his W-H-O apostrophe. Yes. Yeah. He reversed all of them. So that was the only editing <laughs> Besides I, that. Had, I had to do. And, and then I called him and, and I said, I remember I said, it looks good. Thank you very much. He said, righto. And then Mildred Dunnick died, who had played um, the mother yeah. in Linda yeah. in uh, Death of a Salesman. And I called him and he wrote, uh, I remember he wrote her uh, an appreciation of her for us. But we had people like Edward Albee writing for us yeah. and Martin yeah. Gottfried yeah, writing, writing for us. Yeah, was pretty incredible. Yeah. The yeah. people that were on that roster was oh. fascinating. Okay, so then in theater, shuts its doors? Or Theater uh, Week? Well, right? I theater left. Shuts its doors? I left Theater Week. You I did. wound up going to the Daily News. Right. Okay. And I got a job. It's an old-fashioned term now, but I knew I had to get out of Theater Week. And at this point, I was sort of bitten by journalism. 
uh, and I knew I wanted to go to a newspaper. Mm-hmm. You know, little right. <laughs> try going to yeah. a newspaper now. Yes. They don't exist. A what? <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was it was an exciting time for newspapers because yeah. there was no internet. Right. And I got a job as a leg man for a gossip columnist, and that meant that her name was Charlotte Hayes. She had a column called Charlotte's Web in <laughs> the Daily News. <laughs> Very clever. And, uh, and uh, my job was to go out at night to all of the premieres and parties and get little tidbits of gossip to put in the column. So I would go out and, uh, you know, everything was free. We were totally on the gravy train. And uh. you, would, you could eat and drink as much as you wanted mm-hmm. to. And I would drink and drink and drink and get progressively drunk at night. But I remembered I have to get little gossip items. So you'd ask celebrities questions. And I learned a long time ago that if you take out the reporter's notebook, people kind of freeze up yeah. and they, they don't speak freely. So I would just have a conversation with people, you know, directors, actors, playwrights, whoever. And they would chat and then you could get a little nugget. And then I would run to the men's room and I would scribble down what they said, like on the toilet paper or a <laughs> napkin, yeah. something like matchbooks, because yeah. there were always matchbooks in bars and right. you could smoke. And I would write all the tidbits down on those things, and then I would just stuff them in my pockets. And I'd go home, and I had a fishbowl, and I'd throw all of the matchbooks and the napkins and the, the uh, toilet paper into the fishbowl. In the morning, I'd get up, slightly hungover, and I'd kind of fish around for it and then try to find the best bits that I'd heard the night before and bring them in. And I'd spread on my desk the matchbooks and the toilet paper and the napkins. And from that, we would construct the column based on these gossip items that I had gleaned the night before in my rounds. That is so cool. Was there ever any gossip that you you found out and you're like, I'm going to keep this to myself. I'm not going to tell anybody this. Well, there were, you know, I began to learn about libel laws. Yeah. So you couldn't say that somebody was a child molester, a drug addict, an alcoholic, or cheating on his wife unless you could prove it, and the only way generally to prove it was if there was a court case, because a court case is public. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. But we did get sued once. I did get hold of a proposal for a book about the history of Motown, and it was written by a guy who had been a gopher when he was a teenager in Motown, the founding of Motown. Oh, okay. He worked for Barry Gordy. Yeah. Oh, okay. And um, he'd read a couple of other books, so he he was legit. But this proposal was full of salacious details, like Barry Gordy forced Diana Ross to have abortions. Barry Gordy was totally mobbed up. Barry Gordy, this kid claimed he had an affair with Barry Gordy, Mm -hmm. whatnot. And I remember the uh, columnist and I, we we used to like to play with the lawyers uh, because the lawyers would, you know, fight to take things out. They didn't want the paper to be sued. So we would put some pretty extreme stuff in the column, knowing the lawyers would take that out but let other things slide yes. by. Ah, ah. Yes. So we put Stack all that stuff into the column, thinking that, well, I mean, the lawyer's going to yeah. cut out all that yeah. stuff. And the lawyer passed on everything. So all of that stuff oh my gosh. went oh, into the Daily News. And Barry Gordy sued me, the Daily News, and the columnist I was working for oh. for $250 million at the time. <gasps> Wow. Now I was indemnified, which meant uh, the you know the paper was paying all legal costs, yeah. and then there that that's when I really saw the legal system at work and at work and how slow it grinds because that lawsuit went on for something like four years, and I gave deposition after deposition, oh and it went on and it went on and it went on, and in the end, and I don't know if this is true, but it's what I always heard, it, it was settled over a round of golf at the Bel Air Country Club between Mort Zuckerman, the publisher of the Daily News, and Barry Gordy. Gordy. 
And, that's, and then it all went away. That's incredible. That's okay, so, you, so you're starting to, story. to go out. You're starting to listen. How does that then translate into theater writing? Well, because I'd written about theater at um, Theater Week, I started doing articles um, on Sunday about Broadway for the Daily News. Gotcha. And the article that really sort of began my career as a theater writer in newspapers was Sunset Boulevard, the original production. I had a friend who was an investor in the show in London and Los Angeles. And I really didn't know anything about investment papers back in those days, but my friend was kind of teaching me about how the finances of Broadway worked. And he said, this show is so expensive, it's never going to make a profit. It's, the spending is out of control. And this was right around the time Patti Lapone got fired, and that yeah. was another yeah. million dollars that Andrew had to pay to her. Yep. And there were going to be some problems down the line with Faye Dunaway, and she was going to have a payout. But I remember writing an article in the Sunday paper. This was before Sunset opened in New York, when it seemed like it was going to be Andrew Lloyd Webber's next big hit. Right. I mean, he was a fan of the opera, <laughs> Cats. You know, it was big, huge. Glenn Close had gotten rave reviews in L.A. It looked yeah. like it. But I wrote this article based on what my friend had been telling me about how expensive the show was, that Sunset Boulevard uh, could be a fake hit, a phony hit, I think we called mm. it. It was just too expensive to ever pay back. And I remember I came in, that was on a Sunday, and I came in on Monday... And the editor of my section called me into her office and said, Mort Zuckerman, the owner of the paper, said that Sunset Boulevard story was the best paper in the that was the best story in the paper all week. Wow. 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 And then uh, I turned out to be the story turned out to be prescient because indeed Sunset Boulevard yeah. did implode on itself. Yeah. Andrew wound up closing all the Sunset Boulevards all over the world at the time because his accountants told him you'd go bankrupt if they keep running. In fact, I know a lot about this now because Sunset will be the opening chapter in my next book, a sequel to uh, Razzle Dazzle. Yay! Well, because the Sunset Boulevard, remember, is the, it's the end of the British era. Yeah, that's right. The British dominated Broadway from Cats to Sunset Boulevard and then Sunset Boulevard falls apart. It won, it wins the Tony Award in 1995 but with the competition is Smokey Joe's Cafe. Like, well, by default, yeah, by I default, mean, like, yeah. And, but, who's, uh, but who's watching the Tony Awards that year? And he dreams of being on Broadway? Jonathan Larson. Jonathan yeah. Larson, who next year, Andrew Lloyd Webber oh, presents the Tony Award posthumously to Jonathan Larson for a show that A, costs two cents yeah. down at New York Theater Workshop, B, is by an American, right. and C, is young and contemporary. Right, yeah. And that is the end of the British era and the beginning of the Americans back in business on Broadway because then you get rent, Chicago, Lion King, leading to the producers, right. ultimately yeah. to Hamilton. Yeah. So there's a big demarcation yeah, point, a big right. change right there in 1995. That's going to be With the great. end of Sunset Boulevard and the beginning of yeah. the Americans taking the American musical theater back. So That's going to be a great beginning to part two. The other, yeah. the other story I got out of Sunset Boulevard, uh, which also really got me noticed, was I was then learning how to comb through investment papers down at the attorney general's office. You, uh, uh, oh, if you invest, public. Which are public, yeah, yeah public matter of public record. And I would go to the attorney general's office, and I would get all the investment papers for the new shows, and I would look through them. And I got Sunset Boulevard, and I was going through it. And back in those days, you would go and you sit in a room, and, and um, a lawyer on the staff of the attorney general would sit in the room with you while you went through the papers. 
And I remember I got to the last, the last paper in the Sunset Boulevard folder, and it listed all the investors in the show. And I remember the attorney general said, or the guy sitting there, he said, oh, that's not supposed to be there. You can't look at that. And 30 seconds later, they said, there's a call for you on line two. He said, oh, I'll be right back. So he left the room. And of course, I looked. Yes. Yes. And I wrote down in my <laughs> reporter's, I still have a notebook. I wrote down in my report, I wrote, oh and I God. looked, and I saw, hmm, Abe Rosenthal, who was then a big New York Times columnist, yeah. $50,000. <gasps> Barbara Walters, $100,000. Didn't really think much of it. You know, Abe Rosenthal, he was not the editor of the New York Times. He was just an op-ed columnist right, then. Right. He had been the editor of the New York Times. Barbara Walters, you know, she's free to do what her money was sure. supposed to do. So then about three weeks later, I'm watching 2020. And Barbara Walters is profiling Andrew Lloyd Webber about his new Broadway show, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> and I'm waiting for her to say, and full disclosure, I have a $100,000 investment in Sunset right. Boulevard. Yes. And she never did. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so I wrote a column for the Daily News on Barbara Walters, uh, interviewed Andrew Lloyd Webber on 2020, scoop. and failed to disclose the fact that she has $100,000. Now, before that column appeared, I called her press agent, okay. a real idiot at ABC. And he's an idiot because when I called him, I remember what he said to me. He said, do you really think $100,000 means a lot to Barbara Walters? Mm -mm. And I was like, hmm. Now I'm like um, Mr. Tabloid reporter here. <laughs> yeah. and I said, well, $100,000 may not mean a lot to Barbara Walters, but I assure you it means a lot to the readers of the New York the Daily News. <laughs> yes. And that story came out, and Barbara Walters had to go on 2020 the next week and issue an apology for failing to tell the viewers oh, of God. 2020 Michael, that that's amazing. she had a piece of Sunset Boulevard. And then for, for months after, whenever... I would try to work her name into my column somehow, and I always referred to her as Sunset Boulevard investor Barbara Walters, <laughs> which drove her crazy. <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> but those, yeah, those were the kind of stories that I began to make wow, my name yeah. on. So were you just listening to other people talking, or was it just you doing your detective work? I mean, you weren't, you weren't paying like gophers to come in and say, hey, this is what's going no, on. No, I was getting to know everybody. Yeah. I was getting I to bet, know. Yeah, your name would eventually get, I mean, yeah, 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 and I was at, you know, they could call too. To right, yeah, saying, and, hey, I, and also, you know, I mean, uh, kids today, reporters, uh, kids, they don't do it now because they're all on Facebook or they're all on email. But, you know, I deliberately set out I would go to every opening night, and I thought, oh, I have to get to know Jerry Schoenfeld. I have to get to know Jimmy Niederlander. Yeah. I have to get to know these people. I have to get to know George Lane. I have to get to know Sam Cohn. I have to get to know Robbie Lance, the agents. And, and I would just go over to them and introduce myself. And a lot of them were kind of old-timers at that point, and they were delighted to meet a kid who was interested in their business. Okay. So, I mean, I went to lunch once or twice a month at the Russian Tea Room with Robbie Lance and Sam Cohn. And yeah. between the two of them, they were doing all the deals. I mean, you know, Sam represented Mike oh. Nichols and, and, and uh, Kevin oh, Klein yeah, everybody. and Woody Allen and Robbie yeah, represented uh, Peter Schaffer yeah. and Milos Forman, yeah. all those guys. And, you know, Robbie and, and Sam, they would just yak away and I would listen and listen. I'd say, oh, could I use that? Yes. And they would say, but Robbie would say, my dear boy, don't let the fingerprints show. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> right, because you have to keep your trust with some of them, too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you have to maintain that, I would think. Um, and that, what if there was something negative that involved them, like with Jerry or something? Would they, would they know that this was 
This is part of the deal. I mean, that the way it generally works is that uh, they don't give you negative stuff about themselves. They give you negative stuff about their enemies and their rivals. Yes, of course. Yeah, and you know that. And then right? over time, as you get to know people, you get to know where the rivalries are, and you get to kind of figure out what someone's agenda is. But my feeling was, as long as what they told me checked out and was true, I really don't care what the motivation for telling me is. Absolutely. Right. If it's a good, juicy story, the readers want to read it. Yeah, and I can confirm it. I'm going to uh, I'm going to run with it. Wow. Now you're way too young, but were you inspired by the columns of Walter Winchell and Dorothy Kilgallen or anyone? Or well, no? I didn't I didn't know them when I was growing up. But when I got a Broadway column, I, I modeled it to some extent on a pretty vicious column that Alex Winchell wrote. She was she oh, was yeah. mar- she's married to Frank Rich. Yeah. Right. She was briefly the theater columnist for the New York Times when the Times had a Friday column in the early 90s when I was at Theater Week. And that column really shook up the industry because the Times was very genteel and Enid Nimmy, God love her, she would write very nice yeah, yeah, yeah. stories about Broadway. But Alex came in with the dirt. I mean, yeah. the real, and no one in Broadway had, se- had seen this kind of dirt in the Times before and people were terrified. And, you know, and Alex and Frank Rich, he was then the drama critic, they were really powerful. Yeah. And I remember thinking... Ooh, I'd love a little of that power myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also remember thinking, too, if I ever had that kind of power, I would never lord it over the community the way Frank and Alex did. Yeah. You know, if Frank didn't like your play, he killed you, and then Alex came in with yeah. the killer column to stomp all over you to make sure you died. Yeah. And I thought that was a little unfair, the yeah. one-two punch that they had. Mm-hmm. And they had no sense of humor about themselves. They were very thin-skinned. They could dish it out. But if they were criticized, and I criticized them, they were quick to demand retractions right. and threaten oh, yeah. legal action. And I thought, you know, if you're going to be in that kind of a position and you're going to dish it out, you really have to be able to take it. Part so it. my philosophy was as my column grew and I achieved a little bit of power, yeah. nothing like what they had. But when people challenged me or were mad at me, I always gave them a chance to make fun of me, yeah. you know, mock me, come back at me. I never felt that my word was the final word, that I was the arbiter of everything. Yeah. Really quickly, tell your sweet smell of success story. Oh, yeah, well... If that's okay. Right. Um, well, you would ask me, did I get to know Winchell and Kilgallen? Oh, sorry. When I was writing my column, I went back and I, I went to the morgue which is what yeah. the, we call the library in the newspaper business. And I read a whole bunch of Winchell columns, and I read a great biography of Dorothy Kilgallen by Lee Israel. Terrific book. Huh. And so I, I just wanted to learn from them the way they covered Broadway. And what I learned was that they, in their writing, the style of their writing, they were able to capture the, the jangle and the excitement of the Broadway world, what an opening night was like at Sardi's, what it was like to be there in the opening of uh, My Fair Lady or Gypsy. Yeah. So I tried to write with that kind of energy and enthusiasm and to really take you behind the scenes and show you what's really happening. Yeah. That's what I learned yeah. from them. With Sweet Smell of Success, which was a movie I saw because it's about a Broadway columnist... Yep. Uh, Burt Lancaster plays J.J. Yep. Hunsucker, Hunsucker, and um, Tony Curtis plays uh, Sidney Falco, the mm-hmm. Toady press agent. Great movie, by the way. Mm. Love that movie. And then it was made into a not very good musical, uh, directed by Nick Heitner, yep. if I'm not yeah. mistaken. That's right. With a score by Marvin Hamlish. That's right. And not, not Marvin's finest hour. Um, <laughs> but I was pretty tough on that show. I saw it out of town. I knew it was going to be a dog. And I was really a... Really annoyed at it because I love the movie so much. So I yeah. hated to see this musical destroy this great movie. And I was writing some tough columns on it. There were problems behind the scenes and whatnot. And David Brown, the legendary movie producer, he produced Jaws and I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind, if I'm not mistaken. He was married to Helen Gurley Brown, founder of Cosmopolitan. Yeah. And David was producing uh, Sweet Smell of Success. And after about three columns where I was tearing it apart, I got this letter from him. 
And it was a really vituperative, vicious letter. And I remember it said, you know, you think you're Walter Winchell. I knew Walter Winchell. <laughs> you can't hold a candle to Walter Winchell. But I thought it was, it was really yeah. well written. <laughs> it was. It was, and it was, you know, it was written by someone who knew Walter Winchell. Right, no, and here and I he am was there. pretending to be Walter right. Winchell. And this guy said, yeah, I knew him and you're not him. Right. You're trying, but it's pathetic. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to publish this letter oh in my, my column. Oh, my gosh. You know, I've been knocking his show. He can knock me. So I called his office and his secretary picked up. Said, David Brown's office. I said, hi, this is Michael Riedel for David Brown. There was a pause. Yes. He said, could I speak to Mr. Brown? Yes. David comes on. Hello? Mr. Brown, Michael Riedel? Yes. I've received your letter. I think it's great. With your permission, I'd like to publish it as my Friday column. He said, really? <laughs> you, you're okay with that? I said, yeah. Let's, you know, I dish it out. I've got to be able to take it. It's a very well-reasoned letter. Okay. So I published it on Friday. Nine o'clock, the phone rings. Everybody's calling me. They love my letter. Frank Rich loves my letter. Marvin Hamlish loves my letter. Mike Nichols loves my letter. Let's have lunch. And we became pals. It was great. What a business. It says a lot about he you, too. He had so yeah. much fun yeah. that I published his letter. And oh he was a great guy. He was terrific. And That's so cool. And we would have lunch regularly until, until he died. And he had great, great stories. Wow. But that was really, again, it was thinking, I don't want to be like Alex Witchell, who like, yeah. once Just I deliver the blow, you must die and yeah. can never be heard from again. Right. That was never my attitude to, to what I did. And anybody who stood up to me and gave it back to me, I was more than happy to let them have their say in the column. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you love the theater. I mean, you just l eat, sleep, and breathe this. For a long time, I did. Not so much anymore, because I so moved over to the radio, and I'm covering Trump, 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 Trump I was going to say, Trump, you've gone back to your guns, political Trump, well, You're going back to your, your political stuff again. To some extent. I mean, I bring showbiz in. You people do. say, yeah. what do you talk about? I say, Trump, Trump, guns, Trump, Bernadette Peters. Yay. That's what we talk about on the radio. <laughs> I have to ask you, what's like the most awkward encounter you've ever had? You've written about someone. You encounter them on the street, in the lobby, and you they're know, not having me, it. Yeah, uh, to me, I never make it personal. You yeah. know, I try to do it with a sense of humor. So, and I think a lot of people know me now pretty well because I've been around a long time. Yeah. But there was a period of time where people couldn't put together the writer of the column with the person they would meet at an opening night party. Because like like I'm not a vicious, horrible, nasty, mean gutter snipe. No. Which is how I write, but uh, <laughs> that's not how I come across in person. So uh, for a long time, I got people say, I just can't, you're not, how can you possibly be the guy who, I remember somebody, I can't remember who it was, somebody said, you, you can't possibly that be that guy who writes that nasty column. You're just, you're too, you're, you're just too clean. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I know. I think. I mean, but you know, part of it was an affectation. Look, right. I had to write a column that had to be interesting for people to read. Yeah. Okay. People want to read what goes on Hello, behind the scenes. The yeah. They want to be juicy. News. I mean, Lisa's yeah. Like, yeah. And also, you know, I was writing at a time about Broadway when Broadway had yet to become as big as it is today, right. and I was bringing attention to it by writing about it in a lively way. And you know, to this day, friends of mine like David Stone, the producer of Wicked. He always gives me credit for making Broadway interesting at a time when a lot of other media outlets were not paying that much attention. Yeah, and people talking about it. And exactly. That, you know. I mean, listen, I was getting stories. I was breaking stories in the, in the Post that were winding up on the front page of the New York Times. Yeah. Wow. You know, and then I eventually I got to the point where New York Magazine did a five-page profile of me. That's right. I forget what it was called. Um, 
Assassin. That's what I called it. Because uh, there had been a revival of Assassins that yes. time. Right, right. And uh, I, I think it was Rosie O'Donnell was quoted as saying, I hope you eviscerate him. Oh, man. And Elaine Stritch was quoted as saying, I like him, That's but right. I'm unusual. She loves you. That's right. <laughs> but I'm unusual. She lo- oh, Elaine was great. She loved I like all of us. I like him, but I'm unusual. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little about Jerry Schoenfeld. Well, Jerry was, uh, as I say, a great, great friend of mine. Um, he was the lawyer with Bernie Jacobs, working for the Schuberts. And uh, Jerry was not a theater man. I don't think he ever thought he would have a career in the theater. He just wound up. He worked for a law firm that represented the Schubert brothers, right. represented J.J. Schubert. And it so happened that the partners of the law firm died. And Jerry was <laughs> the only guy left. Right, right, right. So he found himself, he had two clients, a coat hanger manufacturer and J.J. <laughs> Schubert. And he went to work for the Schuberts. And Jerry was a very, very fine lawyer. And the Schuberts were fighting... Um, the government, which was trying to break them up because the government accused them of being a monopoly. Right, yeah, right. And Jerry came up with a very interesting defense of the Schuberts that helped them deflect the government's case. Uh, it's a little too technical to get into now, but I try to explain Read the, in book. the book. But uh, but it was it was quite clever. It was he was basically said the Schuberts didn't set out to have this monopoly. It's just that everybody else, the competition, fell away. During the Depression, a lot of people went bankrupt. These theaters were not valuable. The Schubert's just hung around longer than everybody else, so therefore that's how they became a monopoly. So it's unfair to say that they did this deliberately. Mm-hmm. And in the end, they had to sell off theaters and whatnot, but the extent of the breakup of the company was not what it could have been because of Jerry's legal reasoning. Yeah. So you really have to credit Jerry with keeping the empire together, even before he brought in his high school friend, Bernie Jacobs, right. to be his law partner and work for the Schuberts. And then they took over the company. I mean, you know, Jerry, I hope my book reminds people of what Jerry did for the theater because toward the end of Jerry's life, you know, he got a, he could be a little pompous. Yeah. And, you know, he, he liked to be seen as the mayor of Broadway yeah. and he liked people to kiss the ring yeah, and yeah. he enjoyed playing the most powerful man on Broadway. And a lot of people are like, I'm fed up with this act. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm really sick. He's been around forever. He's an old guy. And he's kind of pompous and whatnot. But, you know, he was not really that way when you got to know him. He was deeply insecure. And in his book, um, um, Mr. Broadway, he admits to bouts of depression and profound doubts. And, and, you know, I show in my book, people forget this, but when he and Bernie Jacobs took over the Schubert organization, uh, Louis Lefkowitz, the attorney general, attacked them and went after them. And they were front page news as he accused them of being corrupt, yeah. doing all these terrible things. And there were moments where Jerry was suicidal. Mm-hmm. You know, can you imagine a young lawyer, you're trying to keep this company going, and you pick up the New York Times, the front page news with the attorney general saying that you're corrupt. Right. You should be ousted. You should be forced to resign. Right. But Bernie and Jerry believed that they weren't doing anything wrong but keeping the company together. And instead of folding, and Louis Lefkowitz was one of the most powerful men in New York State, as powerful as the governor, and he was going right for them. And they battled him every step of the way. They had their moments of thinking, is it worth it? Jerry had moments of suicidal thoughts. Bernie had moments where he thought about throwing himself off the balcony in a hotel in London at one point because they were just humiliated by the attacks and the publicity. But they stuck together and in the end, they battled Lefkowitz, and they won. And yeah. they got control of the Schubert organization. 
They did. And Lefkowitz was not able to take them down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was a profound struggle that they had. And so, you know, my book tries to go back to show you what Jerry Schoenfeld was like back right. in those days. And, I mean, I loved him. He was, he was great. He would always say, Michael, come to my office and I will show you how the magic is done. <laughs> now, the magic got a little teetering toward the end because uh, he, he and Sam Cohn, they would, they would do deals and I, he, Jerry would put Sam on the speakerphone. And they were now gentlemen in their 70s and 80s. Yeah. And they'd kind of forget what theater was in play and <laughs> what show was going where. And Jerry would say, uh, Sam, I need to move Al from the Belasco to the Barrymore. And then Sam would say, uh, is it Al or is it Dustin? I mean, Dustin. Are we at the Lyceum or are we at the back? We're at the Schubert, I think. <laughs> and I said, it was, like watching oh, the, wow. it was like watching the Sunshine Boys try to produce a play <laughs> toward the end there. Yeah, but right. it was fun. It was oh, fun. But still, to have seen that. So, so what inspired you to put all of these anecdotes and memories down on paper? The research, yeah. I got a call from a very fine agent, David Kuhn, literary agent, who's the brother of Judy Kuhn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, fact. David had read my column for years and invited me for a drink and said, do you have any ideas, have any idea for a book? And I said, not really. I mean, I, as a writer, I'm a sprinter. You know, I can write yeah. a thousand words, right. column, and then go off, have a drink, go to the show. That yeah. was it. Yeah. A book, that's a lot of pages. That's a lot of words. Right. I said, no. He said, well, you know, we could maybe do an anthology of your columns. I had written a story sort of like the hidden secrets of Broadway that I knew, like, you know, the Schubert offices and J.J. Schubert's penthouse right. above the yeah, Sardi yeah. building. And I knew where Irving Berlin's telephone was. Yeah. And David Belasco's safe is still above the Belasco Theater. Huh. All these little things I'd yeah. gleaned over yeah. the He said, that could be a book, could be a coffee table book, what any other thing. So, yeah, I said, well, the only thing is I, I have, um, I know, I knew Jerry Schoenfeld, and he told me about the struggles to save Broadway and the Schubert organization in the late 60s and early 70s when the whole city was falling apart. And David Kuhn said, that's a book. Yeah. That's a big book. It's a big idea. And no one has written it. And you're the only person who could write it because you're the only person who knows the stories. Yeah. yeah. And you and have access to the people who, and they trust you and they'll talk to you. And that's when I thought, yes, if, I don't write this book. This whole era will never be written about. Yep, and forgotten. You know, I was there at the right time, and I knew the right people, and I was young enough, but around enough that they trusted me, yep. and interested enough. And I do think, you know, having been a history major at Columbia, that really helped me oh. work on the book, because I loved the research. I loved going back to the old clips and reading the books and interviewing everybody. And... And I was really possessed by the book to the point where when I would walk around the Times Square of today, I was not seeing Times Square in 2015. I was seeing Times Square of 1976. Yeah, yeah. I was seeing the Helen Hayes and Morosco that were torn down to make way for the Marriott Marquis right. Hotel. Yeah. I was liver living on another time. Well, you bring us there in the book. That's what's so amazing yeah. about it. It's so vivid. You you create that world for us, and it's it is literally a page turner. I mean, it is, and I cannot believe we don't know these stories today. I mean, that they aren't prevalent. It, well, we do now. Is there a, yeah. is there a movie that could be made? Well, this? it was bought by Radical Media to be turned into a TV show. So Doug McGrath has right, written good. a pilot for it. Good. So I don't, it I don't. Needs, it's, it feels. I like just, it. I take what they call the option money. I like that. Good. <laughs> well, you deserve <laughs> it. You really do. You deserve it. I take it, the option money, and that's it's it. It's so well deserved. How it's, long was it from that first meeting 
realizing this was an idea to going to the actual publication. How many years was four this? Four years. Four years. Yeah, it took four years. Was there anything that you wanted to include in this book that you had to get rid of because it was going to be too long or you felt wasn't... Uh, you know, I wrote... I remember the contract called for sixty to 80,000 words. And I thought, oh my God, I can't ever write that many words. And I wound up turning in 180,000 oh, words. Of course. And I had a very good editor at Simon & Schuster, Ben Loon, and he cut, to the joy of the reader, about 40,000 words out. But they, there wasn't anything major. He just, you know, I, I asked him, I said, well, what is your job? He said, my job is to get rid of the boring bits. Uh, yes. And he did. Great. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I also learned, a, I learned quite a bit from him to write a book like this because he did tell me, he said, write scenes, mm. you know. And I was good at scenes because I would ask people, you know, where did this meeting take place? What yeah. restaurant were you at? What was he wearing? What did he, what did he look like when he told you that? What right. were you thinking? You know, you want those details oh, yeah. to really put the reader into that around that table at Sardi's where Bernie Jacobs is making an important decision that will change right. Michael Bennett's fate. Yes. So I wanted to get those details. And I wrote scenes well, but I made uh, the rookie mistake I made was I would write a great scene, but then I would step back and I would tell you, almost sounding like Jerry Schoenfeld, what it all means, <laughs> what it ultimately would mean in the grand scheme of Western <laughs> civilization, <laughs> because I, being in control of the narrative, know, right. knew exactly what it all meant. And that's where Ben, with his red pen, would say, you don't need to tell us. It gets in the way of the narrative flow. Right. Let the reader make his own conclusions. Okay. You don't need to step back and say, and then it means this. Right. And once I understood that, I went back to the manuscript, and I took my red pen, mm -hmm. and I cut out everything which impeded the flow of the narrative. Mm -hmm. And then I had lunch with a friend of mine, Jackie Collins, mm -hmm. dead now, sadly, uh, and I said, Jackie, you've written 80 books. I've written one book. Can you give me some advice? And she said, cliffhangers make page turners. Mm. End every chapter on something that'll make the reader go forward. And that's when I thought Ian Agatha Fleming, Christie. Agatha Christie, yes. Jackie Collins. Yes. Yeah. So I put all that stuff together and came up with, uh, you know, five big decent book, I think. Oh, I think so. Um, a We're pretty not brilliant smoke book. Up at all. I, mean, I, yeah. I, I knew I was going to meet you today, and it's been on my, my uh, bed stand for a while, uh, and I thought, I'm going to read a little bit to get to know you. Uh, I told you, six hours. It's, it's, I'm, still, yeah. I, I'm almost done now. It's fantastic. I know, it's, it's funny. beyond I, what I thought it was going to be, and then and you, you start out in third person. I thought, oh, this is, this is a narrative. This is not just your opinions on no, no, whatever. No. It is a true... Is a, is, a, is a story. It's, well, it's I, you fantastic. know, I, in my column, I, I can affect a kind of snarky tone, but and that's okay for a 600-word tabloid column, but that, that would go, get really tedious over 400 pages, and it's not my story. Right. It's the, the yeah. other people live this. Exactly. My job is to basically be the traffic cop of right. a lot of really colorful cars whizzing yeah. through Times Square, right. and I just have to keep the traffic flowing. Yeah, that's a great Which thing. is we why we should not have the pedestrian plaza in Times Square, which yes. blocks traffic. Oh, my gosh. Please, get rid of it. Uh, part you. two. Yes, part two. We look part forward two. to Do that. we have a title for part two yet? We don't. My working title was Money, Money, The Triumph and Greed of Broadway. Because <laughs> Broadway is bigger than ever now, but the ticket prices are so yeah. fucking through the roof. You just feel that so many people are being priced out of going to see a Broadway show. Yeah, only expense accounts. Mm, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, they don't. Uh, Simon & Schuster doesn't like greed in the title. It's too negative. Okay. Uh, and also, the original book was going to go from Sunset Boulevard to Hamilton, but that is a lot of stuff to cover. So I think the new book is going to go from Sunset Boulevard to September 11th. Okay. Because I remember oh. vividly that one of the very first things Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, then mayor, did was he called the Broadway theater owners together and said, I want the Marquise of Broadway to be lit Thursday night because I want to tell the world that New York is 
back in business is open for business. Mm. And the best way to do that is to have the lights of Broadway go on. Wow. And to me, that encapsulates over the last 20 years the importance of Broadway to New York City. Mm -hmm. That to tell the world New York was not down and out, the Broadway shows had to go on Thursday night, two days after the attack on the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And I went with Mel Brooks to the then hottest show in town, The Producers, and I watched that show at the back of the house with Mel, and at the end, Nathan Lane, Matthew Broderick, and Mel jumped up on stage, and they led 1,500 people at the Imperial, the at the uh, St. James Theater, in tears, singing "God Bless America." America. Yeah. Um, and I thought that really, to me, says it all about the importance of Broadway to New York City. And I just think that's a good way to end the next. That's book. great. Wow, and a great way to end our time oh, together, wow. Michael. Thank you so much Pleasure. for spending you. so yeah, much time with us. You. Hopefully, you'll come back soon. We haven't even touched like, the 1982 <laughs> yes. great debate. Um, <laughs> go home. Well, call me in four years when the next book is yes, ready. Yes, exactly. We'll, we'll see then. By then, I hope I have a title. <laughs> if you have any ideas, email me. Send them Michael's way. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Good day, Mr. Thomas. Good day, Mr. Schneider. Well, it has happened. We finally hit over 100 iTunes reviews, and we would like to thank each and every person who took the time to do so. Huzzah! Now, Huzzah. <laughs> we want to climb those charts even faster, and that is where you lovely folks who have not yet rated us come in. The process is very simple. On your podcast app, tap the search tab, enter our name behind the curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, tap the search key, Tap our beautiful logo, tap the reviews, tap write a review, then tap your way into our hearts. <laughs> tap your troubles away. away. That's nice, Rob. Once you are there, you can rate us from one star to five stars. Think of one star as Hervé V... <laughs> Rob, how do you say this name? Hervé Villechelle. Oh, dear God. I walked right into that one. <laughs> Think of one star as Hervé Villechelle and Ema Sumac in Sideshow and five stars as front row seats to the opening night of Gypsy. <laughs> But they kiss me. Yeah, they kiss me for the first time. I thought that was pretty good. We want to get good reviews, Rob. We want to get good reviews. Excuse me, Arthur Lawrence. <laughs> Excuse me for trying to liven up our commercial ads a little bit. Eight minute long commercial. I it's an infomercial at you this could. point. <laughs> I'm going to be like that lady that sells you the copper pots. Look at this. You can put 400 pounds of manure in it, and it slides right out. Then you can make an omelet. You got another line, Kevin. Got, got I'm a, waiting for you to say, plus you can leave your comment and let oh, us know if you're liking what guests are like. Plus next. you can leave a comment to let us know what you are liking, <laughs> what you're not liking at this point, uh. or what guests you'd like to hear next. So head on over to iTunes and let us know what you think of our little show. Speaking of little, I'll tell you a story about Charles Lawton later. Thanks, guys. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News and World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.